Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband Bob. Today we'll be reading Genesis chapters 7 and 8, as well as the first 17 verses of chapter 9. Once again, we've chosen an English translation that uses gender-accurate language in this particular passage. Today we will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. So beginning at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah with his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons entered the ark. They and every wild animal of every kind, and all domestic animals of every kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every bird of every kind, every bird, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that move on the earth, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water swelled on the earth for one hundred fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters gradually receded from the earth. 
At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set its foot, and it returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and sent out the dove, and it did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and saw that the face of the ground was drying. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth, and be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, and every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal, and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth, and on every bird of the air, and on everything that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own life blood I will surely require a reckoning, for every animal I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made humankind. And you, be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, 
and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Here ends our reading. Before discussing the actual message of these chapters, it is necessary to identify and remove some ideas that were added to the text by translators who were influenced by Roman law and Greek philosophy. The first problem shows up in Genesis 8.21. Even in gender-accurate translations, we sometimes find language such as, the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Other translations take the notion represented here further by saying, from birth, their hearts are set on nothing but evil. And that's from the God's Word translation. There are two issues with this language. First of all, as we highlighted in our last podcast message, the word translated inclination here is actually intent or purpose in both Hebrew and Greek. While an inclination is something that is involuntary and often subconscious, a purpose or intent is something that is voluntary and conscious. Human beings are not morally responsible for their inclinations. In biblical language, the inclination to do something wrong could be accurately described as a temptation. Even Jesus was tempted, the Bible tells us, but he never sinned. An intention or purpose, however, is a conscious plan or decision to do something that you know is wrong. God knows our thoughts, and if we consciously plan to do evil, we have already committed a sin in our hearts. The second problem with this language is that the passage does not say that human intentions are evil from birth. On the contrary, the word used here in the Greek Septuagint is neotetos. It refers in ancient Greek literature to athletic youths fit for military service. It is also used to refer to youthful folly associated with inexperience. In other words, the inexperienced are more likely to act on impulse to do something that will have unforeseen negative consequences. Examples for these meanings can be found in the Little Scott and Jones Greek lexicon. The notion that human beings are unacceptable to God because they experience desire comes not from Bible passages such as Genesis 8.21, but rather from the Greek philosophy of St. Augustine. He believed that Adam and Eve would have experienced no desire for anything whatsoever, even good things, before eating from the forbidden tree. Every one of their actions, in Augustine's mind, would have been a rational act fully under control of the mind and the will. He viewed emotional influence of any kind, the inclinations of the heart, to be evidence of human depravity. The Bible does not refer to St. Augustine's theology of total depravity from birth in Genesis 
in the language of its oldest available manuscripts, it refers to the folly of youthful inexperience and how this can lead to evil plans and purposes. Another problem can be found in English translations of Genesis 9 verse 5. Many translations use androcentric language here. The New American Standard Bible, for example, reads as follows. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. One of the reasons God's heart was so grieved before the flood was because of all the violence human beings committed against one another. In this passage, God tells Noah, immediately after he and his family leave the ark, that the crime of murder is not to be tolerated. Anyone who takes the life of an innocent human being will thereby forfeit his or her own life. Unfortunately, in the language of the NASB, as well as other androcentric translations, it is the taking of a man's life that is not permitted. We could hopefully assume that all would understand through this language that all human beings would enjoy the same protection under the law. Throughout human history, however, this has not been the case. In fact, in the culture of ancient Rome, women and men did not share the same status or protection against losing their lives. According to War Women and Children in Ancient Rome by John K. Evans, women could lawfully be put to death by their husbands and a tribunal of her male relatives for behavior ranging from adultery to drinking wine. According to a speech made by Roman Senator Marcus Cato of the 2nd century BC, the same rules did not apply to men. Addressing Roman men, Cato said, if you catch your wife in adultery, you can kill her with impunity. She, however, cannot dare to lay a finger on you if you commit adultery, nor is it the law. And this quotation is taken from Women's Life in Greece and Rome by Lefkowitz and Fant on page 98. Roman law, in fact, became an instrument by which women were dominated by men. The law prohibited women from leaving their homes without first concealing the beauty of their hair from anyone other than a husband. Men had the legal right to divorce their wives if a woman was simply caught talking to a person of a different social class. As Evans explains, in early Roman society, all women, regardless of their age, were in a state of permanent ritual and legal subordination to their husbands fathers, or guardians. Once Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century AD, this double standard in secular law began to strongly influence the laws of the church. Women and men in the body of Christ ceased to be treated by the same standard. By the 12th century AD, the laws of the church prohibited women from teaching, leading, or even sharing a testimony with others about the wonderful works of God. This position can be found in a 12th century church document known as Gratien's Decretum. This document, 
would form the basis of canon law in the church for the next 800 years. In contrast to the double standard we find in Roman law and the laws of the Roman church, God's law against murder found in Genesis 9 verse 5 makes no distinction between men and women. The Greek and Hebrew language in the passage prohibits violent crime committed against human beings on the grounds that every person is a member of the same human family and each and every one of us, male and female, is created in the image of God. The language used to describe the family relationship of every single human in this verse is the Greek word adelphoi. Throughout the New Testament, this same word is used to explain that male and female followers of Jesus Christ are all members of the family of God. Unfortunately, many English translations once again translate this term using only male language. Many women who read these versions understandably feel excluded. Furthermore, though this is not specifically stated in the text, some people assume that God made a covenant with Noah and his sons because they were male. The word covenant is a biblical term for an agreement founded on a promise. God promised not to flood the entire earth again with water. The symbol of this covenant would be the rainbow. In the Hebrew and Greek language of Genesis 9 verse 9, God made this promise to Noah and all his descendants. The language in both Hebrew and Greek for descendants is not gender specific. God made this promise to Noah not because he was male, but rather because he was a righteous person. The benefits of this agreement would extend to all of Noah's descendants, both male and female. When we remove philosophical and patriarchal bias from chapters 7, 8, and 9 in the book of Genesis, what message are we left with? Though God was stricken with grief at the ongoing violence and cruelty of human beings, he spared a man named Noah and his family from judgment. After the flood, God made a pledge not to ever again cover all the earth with water. He also established a law that human beings may not take the life of another innocent person, because all of us, male and female, are made in God's image and members of the same human family. In our next podcast episode, we will look at what happens to Noah and his family in the immediate aftermath of the flood.